You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guest on this episode of Talking Taiwan is Amazon Lete, a global LGBTQIA plus advocate and one of the first Asian ambassadors for World Pride at Copenhagen 2021. She reached out to me not long after hearing that Taiwan will be hosting World Pride 2025. Amazon Lete was born in Saigon, where she was left in an orphanage by her mother. Amazon was bullied constantly as a young child because of her ethnicity and sexuality, and it was because of this she went into bodybuilding at the tender age of six, going on to become a competitive natural bodybuilder in her teens, then qualifying as a strength and conditioning coach. As a young adult, she was homeless for a number of years, and it was at this lowest point, contemplating suicide, that Amazon realized her passion and love for sport could help her to survive. Gaining physical and mental strength and confidence from her personal journey of homelessness and against all odds, she has overcome enormous barriers to become one of the most visible and influential leading global rainbow LGBTQIA advocates in the world. She is also a TV film star, entertainment executive, and the first Vietnamese internationally published health and fitness author. I spoke with Amazon at the end of 2021. Here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Amazon. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. What a pleasure. Thank you. Really such a pleasure to have you on Talking Taiwan as a guest. Um, you're truly a global citizen and advocate, as I can see from your background, um, being born in Vietnam, then adopted and raised in Australia, your advocacy in the U.S., and um, also being an ambassador for the Copenhagen 2021 World Pride. Initially, um, I wanted to schedule this interview with you and Darren Chen. Unfortunately, we had a little bit of, uh, we had some problems with the scheduling issues, um, you know, due to our different time zones. So I'm wondering, um, where are you today? Where are you connecting from me? Yeah, so I've been traveling. I actually have been traveling through the pandemic with what I can. Wow, amazing. (laughs) Yeah, so I've been doing a bit of travel um, in Europe, usually pre-pandemic. I'm in at least 20 countries um a a year with my advocacy work and you know many people say you know why do you travel so much because for the most part they don't get to hear an asian lgbtq voice and our stories and you know how do we change hearts and minds and shift the dime towards equality if they don't know what it's like to live in our shoes yeah the representation the visibility is so important um, and we got connected because you reached out to me af- not long after hearing that uh, Kaohsiung, Taiwan would be hosting the World Pride 2025. Um, and that's it's really exciting news indeed. Um, it's amazing that it's going to be the first World Pride ever in Asia. I'm surprised that it hasn't happened sooner. Um, can you talk about like what is the significance of this and what it means to you personally? You know, I was the um, first Asian ambassador for World Pride, um, you know, Copenhagen 2021. And, you know, it was the first time they had an ambassador track that included Asian ambassadors. I was one of two, along with my friend, John Lee Olsen, um, who was one of three, you know, um, ice hockey players that are out in 
the, the world. And I think what does this mean in regards to representation? I mean, World Pride first goes to the Southern Hemisphere the first time there in Sydney, you know, in 2023 and that building that momentum in terms of connecting with the Asian community before it goes to Asia. And I think, you know, for too long, the Asian community has been so underrepresented, you know, in film, in television, um, in the LGBTQ community, our voices are so invisible. And I think the moment that we have for it to travel and be in Asia and for that spotlight of Asian LGBTQ equality. And I think, you know, Taiwan couldn't have been the more perfect place. You know, you have one of the biggest prides in Asia. You know, you have equality and what this means for an Asian LGBT. I always think of, you know, that Asian LGBTQ kid or person who is struggling to be their authentic self and then to see a world pride celebrated in their country and to see LGBTQ people and particularly Asian LGBTQ people from all across Asia and around the world celebrating and loving who they are. And I think it's a revolutionary act when you see yourself for the first time. And I think it will just completely change the landscape for, you know, not just Taiwan, but also for equality across Asia. Let's go back a little bit to your early experience in life and to talk about how that impacted you, your identity and so forth. Since we were talking about the fact that World Pride is going to be in Asia for the first time, I thought it would be good if you could talk about... um, what it was like being adopted and being adopted to another country, adopted from away from uh, Vietnam, and if you had any early memories of, of Vietnam after you were adopted and how that was like. You know, I I struggled deeply as a child, not just the mere fact of growing up in a white background, but being Asian and, you know, struggling with my sexuality and I think this is the story of many LGBTQ youth and many Asian LGBTQ youth of just never seeing yourself. I never saw myself in the media. I never heard my own story. I never saw an LGBTQ person. So I didn't even know what this feeling was inside and why I felt so different. I didn't know the acronym LGBTQ. So I struggled just so deeply and I really felt like I was the only Asian LGBTQ person in the, the, the world and that created such difficulties in my life as well and you know that kind of led me into going into sport at a very young age because of wanting to find that sense of community but then stepping out onto the sports field and just seeing one of one and just you know, I was the only Asian in sports, only the only LGBTQ person in sports. So that racism and bullying and that feeling of just being very isolated and alone in the world followed me. And, you know, when I think of world pride happening in Taiwan, of what that means of seeing yourself as part of a larger community that loves and celebrates you because for the most part we we tend to feel very isolated and alone in 
our pain. And, you know, many Asian people really struggle to be the authentic self um, and struggle in terms of coming out. You know, we don't have that representation that we should have in the West, as, you know, as just as much as we don't see out representation in the East either. How did you begin to discover, connect with your Asian identity? Because it's my understanding, as you said, you grew up um, in a very white uh, community and society and with your adoptive parents. How did, how was it like uh, to begin discovering your Asian identity? You know, it, it, it took a very long time for me because I was very disconnected from the Asian community and the Asians that I met were within their own community. So I felt like I was in limbo. I didn't really fit in with the Asian community. And obviously I didn't fit in with the white community. And I was only really, once I became a young adult that I started to meet other Asian people. And, you know, when I started to travel back home to Vietnam, that I really started to feel very connected to my motherland and understood that, you know, you can take someone out of your country, but, innately there's still a part of you that lives inside of you that's innate to who you ethnically are as a Vietnamese person, as an Asian person. And I could see that, you know, very clearly, you know, and I travel now back, obviously pre-pandemic, but I, you know, I travel back to my home country every single year, a number of, of times a year. And it really grounds me and roots me in my identity and my heritage and obviously all the advocacy work that I do sits within the Asian community in terms of championing equality through the lens of sports and making sure that, you know, other Asian, particularly other Asian LGBTQ youth can see themselves through my story because I never had that. And I know what it was like not to see my story Mm -hmm. and not to hear. Right. And did you know anything about your birth mother, your birth parents, and what was it like the first time uh, that you were in Vietnam after having left? It felt like coming home. That moment on the plane and looking into Saigon, it just, it was an unexplainable feeling of coming home to my mother motherland. Um, and I get that same feeling not as deeply as I did the first time round, but I still have that same feeling and obviously I'm a, a you know I'm a western Vietnamese a- Asian person but I still have that connection of you know I call it my home because that's you know wh- where I came from it's it will always be my mother um, land. Mm-hmm. Yeah it's it's um, pretty amazing it's kind of hard to put that feeling into words. Do you see any differences between the struggles of LGBTQ youth in Asia versus Asian American or Asians in other parts of the world? Look, it is different. I mean, the movement is younger in Asia. You know, I've come from the West. I've lived, obviously, all my life in the West, and I've come from a 50-year-old movement, and I can track that history of the, the movement, you know, obviously, um, but and you know there's also depending on the countries you know there are lack of resources as as well and you know depending on the country you know some asian countries have anti lgbtq laws so that makes it very difficult as well but in turn there were also very similar struggles of the struggle of asian people just 
struggling to be able to come out because there are cultural differences in terms of our struggle. And, you know, even when we're in the West, we're still, we can still be very connected to our culture and our identity as, as well, which can create dif difficulties. And I think for the mere fact that, you know, in, in terms of the LGBTQ community, we just don't have the visibility that we need to have mm -hmm. um, in terms of how our sh stories are shared and the amount of stories that need to be shared and the allyship that we, we don't have as, 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 as well. So you were the ambassador for Copenhagen 2021 World Pride. Was that the first time that you were involved officially with World Pride 20, uh, World Pride? Yes, it, it, it was. I mean, it was just a shame that it was during the pandemic and everything had to be virtual. But, you know, still having these conversations, even virtually, was still very important. And, you know, the legacy that we want to leave behind in Denmark, but also the legacy that we want to continue with World Pride going into Sydney and then obviously um, next in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand that it was um, a little bit different um, in 2021, that it was actually in two cities, um, in Copenhagen, and um, I'm not sure if I can in, pronounce yeah, in the Malmo, other in, uh -huh. Yes, in, in, yeah. in, in Sweden, because they're quite close together. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, and, and it was the first time that there was a World Pride and a Euro Games um, in, in the same country as well. So it was a, a very special moment, particularly for the mere fact that I'm an athlete as well. So I could, you know, have these intersectional conversations around not just LGBTQ equality, but what does that look like through the lens of sports as well? Right, right. Interesting. Um, so as you mentioned, um, since it, this was um, during COVID, er everything was virtual? Um, there was bits of it in person, but also many of the conversations had to be um, virtual as, as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, but I think and, it worked well because there's a further reach that you can have through, um, you know, virtual space. And also, you know, there were so many people that aren't yet out or aren't comfortable to go to a, a pride from various reasons, but then they can log in anonymously virtually and still, you know, feel like they're part of the community. Mm -hmm. Right, that's interesting. And how has COVID impacted you personally? You know, it's it's been very, I think COVID has been very difficult for everyone. I think, you know, the social isolation, struggling with one's mental health, it brought up a wave, particularly in the West and across Europe, you know, the anti-Asian hate sediment that we just did not expect in such a global wave and you know I've experienced my own anti-Asian hate of you know when you at attach um, a virus to a community and that outcome to it and you know it shows that language matters your words matter but it's also amplified the Asian community in a way that we haven't seen in terms of sharing our stories globally. Right yeah it's very interesting how COVID has actually exposed a lot of things for good or bad hopefully more good in the in the end game prior to world pride 2021 had you attended any other of the past pride events in other cities yes i mean i've been fortunate enough that i've been able to participate and collaborate um, 
with pride um, in, in various different countries. I always kind of think, you know, the vis visibility is so important. And when you have an opportunity to be openly out and have these conversations around equality, it's important too, because I think I never saw that when I was, you know, a, a child or in my teenage years and the importance of seeing yourself for the first time. And I always say it's a revolutionary act when you see yourself for the, the first time and what it would mean to an Asian LGBTQ person attending a World Pride or a Pride event and seeing mm -hmm. themselves and others. Since I'm based in New York City, I had the serendipity and the pleasure to be here when uh, World Pride was hosted by New York um, with the 50 Years of Stonewall. So that was uh, quite an amazing moment. And since I'm connected with the Taiwanese American community, the um, we hosted a float and I was on the float. It's always a lot of fun to be on the float during Gay Pride. And I was a part of the World Pride um, events in New, New York. Um, oh. I yeah, I spoke at the Human Rights um, Conference that they had. Wonderful. Seeing as you're involved with uh, the World Pride 2021, um, what advice would you have for Darian and his team uh, going forward? You know, I think COVID has shown us that we, you know, we just don't have to have in-person events and the virtual space has become so important because there will be so many Asian LGBTQ people that aren't out that will be too afraid to attend World Pride in person for various different reasons, not just in Taiwan, but from different parts of Asia. And it's mindful to be able to think of, you know, when you're looking at your cultural programming, how can we have the, the widest reach and the virtual space, you know, gives you that capacity to be able to have a wide reach across Taiwan, across Asia, but also gives you the capacity to be able to then record those conversations to save online as, as well, because it's not just now an in-person event it's also a virtual event as well we need to continually think about those that still can't attend a pride but still feel that they want to be connected to the community somehow yeah i noticed that um the pride celebration in taiwan this year was there was a live stream so um so i'm sure that they know how to do that um have you been to taiwan I haven't, and I had planned to go in the last few years, but because of the pandemic, um, I wasn't able to. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I'll be able to collaborate with World Pride in Taiwan and, and do something to, together. Sure, sure. Well, now you're connected with Darren, so maybe you guys can uh, connect and talk about that. After leaving Australia as a and later as a young adult, I understand that you became homeless. Um, could you talk about um, that time a little bit and um, where did you go after you left Australia and how long were you homeless? Um, you know, I think that we're, for, for so many of us, and I think the pandemic has shown that, you know, we're always one paycheck away from being in poverty and one person away from being in the bad crowd. And, you know, I had suffered so much bullying and racism and discrimination, you know, in, during my formative years. And I held so much pain in as well. I just did not know how to process 
the pain and trauma. And so when I eventually left Australia and started traveling around the world through Europe um, and the, the US, I just ended up like so many young adults falling into the bad crowd. And because I wanted to find a sense of self and a sense of community, but I ended up, you know, meeting people who were partying, doing drugs, alcohol, everything. And then just, you know, life can take a spiral that you cannot expect. And one thing led to another. And I ended up homeless for a number of years in and out of shelters, begged on the street, slept on the streets for a period of time. And it was just such probably the lowest moment that I've ever had in my life. And I saw how the world treated me being on the margins of society. Um, but I also knew that I had so much more to give and the impact that I wanted to give, you know, I had to find a way to pull myself out. And I'm one of the fortunate ones. Not everyone has the resilience and strength to do that. And I think it had been a lifetime of sports that helped me build that resilience. And I always knew that I always had to rely on myself because no one else was going to be there for me. And it was the hardest thing that I ever did. I had a mental breakdown. It took me years to just get my mind in the right place and to get myself in the right place. But now I see the world through a completely different lens. And, you know, it led me to all the advocacy work that I do today because my story is the story of so many LGBTQ youth. And now for a short break. We're proud to say that Talking Taiwan is now a 2021 Golden Crane Award-winning podcast. Talking Taiwan is a Golden Crane Award-winning podcast and the longest-running Taiwan-related podcast. We are dedicated to bringing you stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. Help us to grow and continue producing engaging content by making a contribution on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Talking Taiwan. So you mentioned that you went through a mental breakdown. So that mental breakdown was as you were trying to get out of homelessness? Yes, I had, you know, I, I've, I've always struggled with my mental health and I think it's just through a, a lifetime of trauma and I think all of us have struggled I mean I think the pandemic has shown that everyone struggles with mental health it's probably been the, the, the number one you know issue that we really need to look at and you know I had a mental breakdown and I think I had and I think my body had to break down to repair itself because I feel I became stronger from that and my resilience became stronger as, as well. And I think you could only come out of a situation like I had gone through um, stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, mental health is another thing that is not often discussed in the Asian community and in a lot of communities. And um, in general, I think that we don't understand the importance of mental health. I myself have been introduced to this book called um, When the Body Says No, and it really made me think, I don't know if you've heard about that book, um, but it really made me think about um, that trauma is not necessarily the most extreme definition that we think of someone being in a car accident or some natural disaster or whatever, but that trauma could simply be some 
emotional event that is incomplete or some life experience that is incomplete and to different people that's different things and those things if they're not dealt with they can pile up and they can actually result in um, physical health issues so it it's very real what would you say to people like what would you like people to know about the homeless or how they should treat the homeless because i feel that um, it's so common right people just walk by them and um either ignore them or just yeah like they just walk by them like they're invisible so what would you say to people um how they should view or deal with the homeless you know it's like just homelessness is a temporary situation sometimes that temporary situation goes on for a lifetime others it can be for a very short period of time and it doesn't mean just because you're experiencing homelessness that you don't have hopes and dreams and aspirations for yourself but you're you're at the moment you're stuck in a very difficult situation um and it's and it can be very difficult asking for help as well and i think a lot of people yes you know we, we walk by because we turn our noses up of Oh, that person's homeless. Let's look at them begging for money. Why don't they just go and get a, a job down the road at the, you know, at the, at, the, at the takeaway store? But sometimes you just can't because your mental state of mind is so in such a difficult place that you it's you can't even wake up in the morning. And I remember being homeless and having days where I just couldn't get out of bed. My body had, like you said, your my body had just said no. It got to the point where it was just so worn out and broken down that it had just said no to me. And I think, you know, what can one do who sees a homeless person but wants to help? It's like, well, in your local community, are there organisations that you can donate to, other organisations that you can give time to? Do you have tins of food at home that you don't need that you could give to a food bank or volunteer your time to give food to the homelessness you know are you working in a company that could look at some kind of program to help get people back into the workplace there's so many different things that we could do that we don't think of and I think it's for us to think outside the box because at the end of the day you think what if that was me and I think I look at that and think that was me and I didn't have any resources and I had very little support and what that would mean if someone had helped me. And you need to think like that because people think we're fine until we're not. And, you know, I think through the pandemic has shown that everyone has struggled and so many of us are on that tip of being homeless or one paycheck away from poverty. Um, how did you get out of it? I, I have heard some of your other uh, interviews when you talk about you had this day where you just broke down and um, you were not able to get out of bed for a day or two. But um, and I, maybe this is not a simple answer, but I'm curious, like, how did you get yourself out of there? Like, what steps did you take um, and how did you deal with the breakdown? 
you know, I think for me throughout my entire life, I've always had big whys of like, you know, I, I wanted to make an impact through sport. Why, why did I want to do that? Because it's what I went through and I think you need to have a purpose in life and I think for many of us you know sometimes we don't seem to have a purpose so it's even just hard enough not being homeless and getting out of bed on a a Monday morning and you know when I went through that very difficult moment of sleeping for two days straight waking up on the third day in a fetal position just crying my eyes out I suddenly had that big why of I still had so much more to give because that was the goal that I had of making this impact, but I still have nothing, but I still have so much more to give. And that kind of big why propelled me, but also a moment that I had when I was a child, and it's completely different for everyone, but you know, when I was a child, I had this moment where a teacher made me stand up in the class. I was the only Asian kid in the class. So I really did feel like I was being picked on. And she said to all the other kids, this is what failure looks like. And at most in life, I'll make a potato peeler. And I just, that moment came back to me as I was in this shelter, thinking about my life, thinking that would be my greatest failure, that if I just kept sinking deeper and deeper. And so these big whys helped pull me out and you know a lifetime of support became my survival mechanism I went back into the resilience of an athlete the mindset of an athlete and slowly helped pull myself out but it's a very long process there's no simple you know one two three step to it for many people who have pulled themselves out of homelessness it's a years and years of months long process of you know getting your mental states in the right state of then trying to find ways to seek help there's no sort of simple one two three step book guide that I have sure of course Um, you know but I as I said I'm one of the fortunate ones that was able to do do that but then share my story and then look at how I can help particularly other LGBTQ youth because when you look at the youth population LGBTQ youth only make up three to five percent but over 40 percent 40 to 50 percent are made homeless and and many don't survive or don't you know aren't, don't have the resilience that I have to be able to pull themselves out of their situation. In the past, uh, you actually competed as a professional bodybuilder, and I've heard you speak about your experience um, in the bodybuilding world and how it's very um, heterosexual. Um, I remember you telling a story about a person who came out and as a result of coming out, lost their sponsorship and um, their titles and things like that. So I'm wondering, um, as you were in that world, um, did you have to hide your um, sexual orientation or were you able to come out? I never believed for a moment that I could be openly out in sports. From the moment that I stepped out onto the sports field as a kid, you know, I encountered racism and discrimination. I never felt that I could ever be out in sports. And that created a deep sadness within me. But then you just suppress that feeling because if that's something that you could never do there's no point in your mind mulling over it and then when I entered into the bodybuilding community you know it's a very heterosexual very masculine very misogynistic very sexist sport with very stiff gender norms I mean it struggles 
even to this day in terms of women being feminine and having muscularity and then on top of that being lgbtq the you know the sports federation told me in the community at a you know as soon as i stepped into the gym that there's no place for lgbtq people in the bodybuilding community and you could never be out so i just stopped thinking about it there was no point to try and be myself in a world where i was already struggling to be a woman in this world who was mus- muscular i did not want to add another layer of discrimination uh, yeah that's unfortunate that um you couldn't really be yourself um when you're um in that arena can you tell me a little bit about your foundation? Um, I understand you have a foundation, the Amazing Latte Foundation. Like, why why was it founded, and what are you doing with it? What are your current programs and initiatives? So it's launching next year in the U.S. You know, it was really through my own journey of just not feeling like I was loved and celebrated as an Asian LGBTQ kid, just not seeing myself having difficulties in sports being, you know, with racism and discrimination. And, you know, that led me to launch my own organization next year, you know, and, you know, the flagship program will be a leadership in sports academy. And, you know, I wrote the spec for the academy that I did pilot actually in Vietnam a number of years ago because, you know, this is the academy that I wanted where I could play sports, where I could become a leader, where I'd be loved and celebrated, but also where LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness could be given an opportunity and then a fast track to employment. So I'll be launching it um, in the South next year because, you know, when you look at homelessness um, I mean, obviously, LGBTQ youth homelessness is all across the U.S., but for the most part, many of the youth are coming from the South for obviously many different reasons. So I want to go to the root of the problem and, the, um, and my academy and organization will launch and sit within Atlanta and I will take it all across the South because if you change the South, you change the US and then you know through the pandemic I've seen you know we can do so much virtually so I will have leaders and other LGBTQ people within the community log in online as as well. And um, what is your hope um, that you accomplish with the foundation or what is the legacy that you'd like to leave? You know the, the legacy that I want to leave behind is a world where everyone can show up as themselves and where, you know, particularly sports is welcoming, you know, for tr- particularly for trans and non-binary kids, because right now 10 states have banned trans and non-binary kids from playing sports across the US. And that, you know, unfortunately may escalate into next year. And, you know, everyone should be able to live in a world without fear of violence and discrimination. And I think you know, I have this opportunity to be part of the solution with the work that I do as an advocate, but also with the launch of my organization and academy where all kids can thrive through sports, regardless of their gender identity or sexuality. Mm-hmm. Can you share any stories from uh, LGBTQ that you've worked with? Um, like, have, they, have you received any letters or have any of them told you about how 
your work or you as a role model have impacted or inspired them? You know, I think, you know, as a LGBTQ global advocate, a, a lot of the work that I do is, you know, on a very high level governmental level and obviously the press interviews that I do. So you, you sometimes you feel very disconnected to those on the ground until, you know, I do receive, you know, DM messages through my social media, emails, and then, you know, what, when I travel to events and some random person will come up to me and say, we read about you and what your story means. And then you realize, you know, the lives that you're touching and what that means to that one Asian or LGBTQ person that sees themselves in your story. Because I think about myself and what that would have meant for me as, as well. And, you know, and I realized that, you know, it can be very thankless work because you, you don't get to connect with everyone, but you know that there's someone out there, someone in the world that's going to listen to Talk Taiwan podcast interview that I've just done and that person's life will change forever because they will hear their story in my story. Mm -hmm. And um, could you talk a little bit about your work that you did during the Obama administration since you mentioned that a lot of the work that you do is very high level? You know, because I always kind of think, how do we change hearts and minds? We have to go to the decision makers. It's not just grassroots work, but it's the government. So I do a lot of governmental engagement work, open door and closed door where I speak to governments all around the world about how do you look through the lens of sports to champion equality and also talk about the challenges that Asian LGBTQ people face. And I talk generally around equality, if that's gender equality um, as, as well. And, you know, and I'm very much involved in U.S. politics. You know, I collaborated with the Obama administration. I was part of the Out for Biden campaign as well as one of the Asian and LGBTQ digital advisors. I was part of the Mike Bloomberg um, campaign. I've done a lot of work on the ground as well um, in Georgia as well, where I spent a lot of my time. And I find it fascinating. And I think because these are the people that are creating the policies, but until they hear our stories, they don't maybe not necessarily know what kind of policies that need to be created and I think if you're going to change hearts and minds you have to start from the top down and the bottom up. Mm -hmm. um, and what are you working on these days? Um, is there anything in particular that you want to share with my audience? Um, it could be something a little bit more personal or some new initiative that you're working on. Um, so I'm the ambassador to various organizations. I'm actually the only Asian LGBTQ athlete in the world to simultaneously hold six ambassador roles. So next year is a really big year. I'm part of the Commonwealth game. First time we'll be having conversations around being Asian and LGBTQ in sports with the Commonwealth games. I'm looking to Beijing. Um, I'm a Federation Gay Games ambassador. So we're looking at what kind of conversations we can have around the Hong Kong game games in 2023. Um, I'm also working with Prince Charles organization, the Prince's Trust. They're the largest youth organization in the UK and one of the largest youth organizations in the, the world. And I think through the virtual space, you know, I'm able to reach so many more people in different regions through these conversations. And, you know, you have to have these conversations over and over 
again and you know and I'm also working on a very big event in Washington next year over Pride Month. Wow, that's incredible. And um, I understand that is it one of your ambitions to compete in the Olympics? So I'm now training in competitive shooting. Um, obviously, the pandemic has hasn't helped my training, but no, I, I archery. No, actual actual gun shooting. Oh, okay. Air gun shooting. Okay. Um, I wanted to do something completely different that trained my mind. Um, where I didn't actually have to run a marathon because I've been so physical throughout my career, athletic uh-huh. um, career. Look, you know, I would, I think, you know, you always have to have a big goal to work mm-hmm. towards and I'd love mm-hmm. to qualify for the Olympics. I would love to qualify for the Southeast Asian Games and represent Vietnam as well. There are very few out um, shooters in, in the world and I don't believe we have any. Um, in the West, who are Asian? Um, Is that a very you know, um, heterosexual uh, sport, also? Um, in Asia, actually, shooting is a very big sport. Some of the top, you know, okay. actually, Viet- Vietnam won its first gold medal in shooting. Um, countries like Korea have some outstanding, um, actually, female um, okay. shooters. And y- yes, in the West, when you look at, I mean, I'm doing all my training in America. Um, and it, it does look, and because I'm in the South, it does look very white. Um, <laughs> I'm the only Asian <laughs> LGBTQ shooter. And that's, and that's, you know, another way to break down barriers that yeah. women can participate in any sport, Asian women, LGBTQ people, you know, we should not restrict our, the sport that we want to participate in. We need to mm-hmm. representation mm-hmm. across the board. Yeah, it all starts with the personal connections. Um, you know, if we don't know if someone has never met anybody Asian or an LGBTQ person or whatever, it's hard to relate. And that's that's definitely how you break down the barriers and how you begin to understand and bridge different people and different groups. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with my listeners that we haven't covered today? Um, I think, you know, people can follow my work at AmazonLetty.com and, you know, they can follow me on social media at AmazonLetty. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to be on this podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Amazon Letty, a global LGBTQIA advocate. If you enjoyed this episode, go on over to Audible or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.